Well, thank you so much for being here again, especially if it's your first time here at Bayou City Fellowship. We are so thrilled that you are here. Uh, last week, I was in Atlanta, and um, the people I were with said, hey, you know what would be an awesome idea is if we swam with some sharks today, and, uh, and that sounded great to me. I don't know if you're a big fan of swimming with sharks, but I'm a big fan of any, anything, doing anything where I might die. That always makes it more fun. And so we uh, go to the Georgia Aquarium. The Georgia Aquarium is the largest aquarium in the world, and they have this massive tank. They have a bunch of tanks, but their massive tank, it's bigger than a football field. It's filled with, you know, all kinds of different sharks, not the crazy scary ones that you see in movies, but all the ones that still are really dangerous but you never hear about. And uh, all kinds of fishes. You've got the big manta rays uh, floating in there, the kind with like 12 feet wingspans, you know, I mean, just unbelievable stuff. But the, the jewel of the crown of the Georgia Aquarium is the whale shark. Anybody know what a whale shark is, by the way? If you're not picturing it with me this morning, just picture a whale, but then it's a shark. And so that's a whale shark. So this massive, massive fish, not mammal, uh, could probably fit on this stage, but it would be close. I mean, this is a massive, massive thing, and we're going to swim in the same pool as this thing. Now, most of the other sharks, they swim kind of on the bottom, and all the fish are everywhere, and the manta rays kind of go wherever they want, but the whale sharks swim on top of the water, which would be cool if we were scuba diving, but we're not scuba diving, we're doing snuba. Snuba is like a combination of snorkeling and scuba, and so you've got the oxygen like scuba, but you've got the floating like the snorkel. And so we're going to be on the top of the water. The, the whale shark's also going to be on the top of the water. So uh, there's going to be a problem at some point, I'm thinking. And so they get us in a wetsuit. Uh, by the way, if you wear a wetsuit at the Georgia Aquarium, they ask for your height and weight. And I'm just going to tell you, um, don't be generous to yourself when you tell them how much you weigh. Because that suit is so tight if you exaggerate how little you weigh, which I may or may not have done. And so I'm barely able to breathe in my wetsuit, which is made for a, a smaller man than I am actually. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm suffocating, essentially, and they put the mask on, and I got the oxygen, and we start floating on the water, and we're kind of doing this big figure-eight pattern and looking down at the bottom, and you've got all these sharks, black tip sharks, uh, sand tiger sharks, just amazing things, all these amazing fish. The manta rays will kind of come behind you with their giant wings. It's amazing. And here comes the whale shark. Again, as big as this stage, I'm not exaggerating. Preachers sometimes exaggerating. Not exaggerating. Massive, massive thing. Floating on top of the water. I'm floating on top of the water. And it's going to be a collision which I am not going to win. But I'm a terrible swimmer, so there's not a lot that I can do at the moment. I'm just stuck there, and he's coming. And at the, the very last minute, he just dips right underneath me. But his fin literally almost grazed my chest. I could have grabbed onto it and let him float me around the, the pool, but that was against the rules. And it was unbelievable. Just in the pool with these things, thinking God made a whale shark. I mean, who needs a whale shark? I don't know that they serve much purpose in the world other than for God to go, I made that and that is awesome. So I came home interested in oceanography and so watched a lot of documentaries in the last week. Uh, did you know that there's a school of fish um, off the coast of South Africa that when a predator comes, the school of fish will be, be, begin to move as one and they'll go in a really, really fast circle. And when the predator comes through, they move out of the way as one unit. This massive mound of fish, thousands of fish just spinning around. And when the predator comes, they just move out of the way as if they were one person. God made that. 
Or there are certain kinds of sharks in the world that can sense their prey five miles away. Can you imagine tasting your dinner on your way home from work? That's what a shark can do. And God made those things. And so being in the aquarium, learning all that stuff, I'm thinking that if God wanted to, to, to prove to somebody, this is why you should believe in my son, he would push forward the whale shark. He would say, I made that massive thing that glides through the water. Or he would push forward this school of fish moving as one. But that's not what he does. Maybe you're into space and you can look up to the sun and the moon and the stars and all of that stuff. And you think that's what God would use to prove to people, this is why you should believe in me. And God does use that. The scripture says that he's using all of nature to reveal himself. But at the end of the day, that's not what he's pushing forward to the world as proof of why the world should believe in him. Or maybe you can go to geology and the lava and the mountains, but that won't be it either. At the end of the day, what God pushes forward to the world as proof, the verifying evidence of why they should believe in his son, Jesus, it's you and me. We are the verifying evidence of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God wants to demonstrate to the world why believing in Jesus is a good idea, he doesn't send the whale shark, and he doesn't send a mountain, he doesn't send the sun and the moon and the stars. He sends you, and he sends me. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2 Chapter 3, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or like some, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. Since it is plain that you are Christ's letter, produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. So the Apostle Paul says in verse 1, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or like some, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now you remember the Apostle Paul, he's got this complicated relationship with the Corinthians. And he's, he's written letters back and forth. They've written him some letters. Some things have happened. And, and right now, in, this, in their relationship, they have kind of been questioning is he somebody that we should listen to? Is he somebody that we should trust? We know that he was instrumental. We know that he's the one who laid the foundation for us all becoming Christians. But now some other people have gotten in our ear. Can we really trust him? Is he really trustworthy? Can, can we put our hope in the message that he's preached? And so a lot of Second Corinthians is his, him responding to that. Now, in the first century, Christianity is brand new. That's one of the things that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we are living out a faith that many, many people over generations and thousands of years have believed. And so we have that. But in the first century, this was brand new. And so uh, the gospel would come in to a city and people would believe in Jesus and they would put their hope in Jesus and then they would start a little church. Now, the church may just be the size of a house. And you have these traveling ministers who would come into these cities because not very many of these cities had you know, ministers who had a background uh, in Christianity. And so they would come and they would spend months or sometimes even years with the church. 
But you can imagine being this little house church kind of in the middle of nowhere. No one else in your city or really even in your region believes in Jesus. And here, come, here somebody comes up to your door, knocks on your door at your church meeting and says, Hey, I'm a traveling minister and you should just let me teach. You'd be like, well, how do we know if we can trust you? So they would carry with them these letters of recommendation from other churches that these people had ministered in. And they would say, hey, you know the, the, the church in Galatia. Well, I've been there. I've just spent the last six months from them. And they sent me a letter of reference so that you would know that I'm, I'm safe, that I'm with you, that we are like-minded. And so they would carry these letters. And so what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, listen, you know me. Are we going back to the beginning now where I need some letter to prove to you that you can trust me? Do, do I need a letter to give to you or do I need you to sign a letter for me saying that I'm trustworthy? No, you know me. And then he takes his argument up another level and he says, you, Corinthians, you are my letter. You are the proof that my gospel is trustworthy, that my gospel is accurate, that my gospel has authority, that I'm a trustworthy minister of Jesus. You are the proof. If I want to prove to somebody that they should listen to me, all I have to do is push forward you. And then he takes it the next step. Look in verse 3. Since it is plain that you are Christ's letter, produced by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, so his argument is, is, do I need a letter? You are my letter. In fact, you are Christ's letter. What he's saying is that you and I as followers of Jesus, we are a letter from Christ to the world about Christ. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's writing a story of his work in you. And that story is not just for you. That work inside of you, it's not just for you. It's not just so you can be built up, not just so you can have a lot of knowledge, not just so you can uh, have all of your spiritual ducks in a row. That letter, that work that he's doing inside of you is for you, yes, but it's also to the world about Jesus. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because that's some heavy pressure to be a letter from Christ to the world about Christ, that he pushes us forward as verifying evidence of the power of the gospel. That's some powerful stuff. That's some heavy pressure. So what are people going to see in us that's going to verify the gospel? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature we were children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is abundant in mercy... Because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. By grace you are saved. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what the scripture is saying is what the world should be seeing in us. 
is that we have received the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is simply that the Son of God came to earth as obedient to the Father on our behalf. He he lived a perfect life, a righteous life. At 33, he laid that life down on the cross. He was buried. He was raised from the dead three days later. He made many appearances. He ascended up into heaven, and one day he will return. And the scripture says that everyone believes in him receives eternal life. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus. And there is power to the gospel. That when you believe in that message of Jesus Christ sent to earth, Son of God, something happens to you. There's power in that message. And the powerful thing that happens according to Ephesians chapter 2 is you move from being dead in your sins and I move from being dead in my sins and trespasses to alive in Christ. You know, there are all kinds of resurrection stories in the gospel. Seems like if Jesus walks into the room, people get raised from the dead. You remember the story where he's walking into a city, a little village called Nain, and there's a funeral procession that is literally happening as he walks into the village. Now these villages are not big, probably just one main road. And so Jesus is walking down that main road and the funeral procession is happening down that main road. It's a widow who has lost her only son. So she's already lost her husband, and now she's lost her son. So she's going to kind of be in a bad way because she's not really connected in a family way to any man who can take her in and provide for her, which was really important in Israel in the first century. And so she's going to be dependent on the kindness of some stranger or some friend to bring her into their family. And so Jesus sees this funeral procession happening, and he just interrupts it. And he reaches in. And he raises this young man from the dead. I don't know if you've been to a funeral, but I'm guessing that the person that you came to honor was dead when you got there and was dead when you left, but not Jesus. When he got to the funeral, there was death. And when he left, there was life. You remember the story of this religious teacher who came to see Jesus because his daughter was sick. And he says to Jesus, essentially, if you can just come with me. I know she'll be fine. And so Jesus says, let's go. But as they're on their way to his house, one of his servants comes and says to the father, she's, she's already gone, it's too late. And Jesus says, let's go anyway. And so they come into the house and everyone is mourning, which is what you would do if the little girl that you knew died. And Jesus takes the mom and the dad and three of his disciples and they walk into the bedroom of the little girl where there she is laid out in front of them. And he just simply walks over and he says, wake up. And she does. And then John chapter 11, Jesus, Jesus' friend Lazarus, he's standing outside of the tomb and everyone is mourning because Lazarus was loved. Lazarus' sisters are right there and they're devastated. Jesus himself is devastated. And he says, I want you to roll away the stone. And they're like, what are you doing? I mean, he's been dead for so many days. It's just not a good idea. There's no hope now. If you had come earlier when he was alive, you could have made him well. But now he's dead. There's no hope. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. And they do. And you know what happens. Jesus says, Lazarus, come on out. And a dead man, a dead man comes out of the grave. And we read those stories and we hear those stories and we think, man, that is unbelievable. That is 
a miracle. That's just off the charts. If I saw something like that happen, I would never doubt ever again that Jesus is the way and Jesus is what I should do with my life and I never struggle with sin anymore if I could see that because that is a massive miracle. But what the scripture is saying is those miracles, those resurrection stories are not better than your resurrection story. It is not more miraculous that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead than it is that he raised you from the dead. It's not more miraculous, not more amazing, not more wonderful, not more awe-inspiring that Jesus walked into the village of Nain and the guy was dead, but when Jesus walked out of the village of Nain, the guy was alive. That's not more amazing than what he did when he walked into whatever room you were in, when your mind and heart was open to Jesus and you said, I believe he walked into the room and he raised you from the dead. And that's just as amazing of a miracle as anything you can read in the scripture. And that is the power of the gospel. That when you believe, you come alive. If you're not a Christian today and you came because a friend invited you or you're trying to get your life straight and you're trying to seek all this stuff out, maybe you have a little background from when you were a kid, I want you to hear me so clearly today. What we are not peddling today is become a Christian and change your behavior. You can go out into the world and find a thousand different religions with that message. There are a lot of different religions that can make your behavior really, really good. I have someone who I love as much as anybody in the world. Uh, They're a Jehovah's Witness. And if you were taking their life and my life and deciding which one you were going to follow, which faith you were going to follow, faith in Jesus Christ alone or the Jehovah's Witness faith, and you were just basing it off who had better behavior, you would go with her every time. She's the nicest person on planet Earth, the kindest person on planet Earth, uh, the most moral person on planet Earth. So you're trying to make a behavior decision about me and her. You're going to go with her every time. But that's not what we're offering today. We're not offering come to Jesus and get your behavior fixed. We are offering today come to Jesus and come alive. You are dead right now. Because of your sins and trespasses. And I was dead in my sins and trespasses. But Jesus walked into the room. And I said, I believe in you. And he made me alive. And he made you alive. And so the reference letter. The verifying evidence of the power of the gospel. Is your proof of life. Do people look at you and go, man, that, that person is alive. He is alive in a way that I am not alive. He, she has something that I do not have. There is something swirling in her. Something she has built her life on that I do not have. Is there proof of life in you? Because you are the message to the world of what happens when people believe in Jesus. You can be raised from the dead. Not just I'm a better person or I got my act together, but I was dead and now I'm alive. And people will believe in him because they see life in you. That's what happened in John chapter 4. You remember that story? Jesus was walking through 
Samaria, and he stops at this well, and his disciples kind of go off to find food and lodging and those kinds of things, and he just hangs out at the well, and this woman comes, and it's at an odd time, which meant there was something about her that was different than all the other women in her village, because she had come alone, and so Jesus starts up a conversation with her, and uh, long story short, Jesus says to her, listen, you, if you had living water, you wouldn't need to come back to this well over and over again, that's what you're missing, and she's like, well, who's the living water, where can I get the living water, Jesus is like, I'm the living water. Uh, She starts asking a bunch of religious questions, which is what we do when God really starts working in us. We just start asking a bunch of religious questions that are kind of irrelevant. So if you're there and you're like, well, I don't know about this and this and this, that's just a religious question to distract you from what matters most. And so that's what happened to this woman in John chapter 4. And she says to Jesus, listen, if the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he's going to answer all of my questions, all of our questions. And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. And she must have believed it because the Bible says she goes back into her village And many people in her village believed in Jesus because of her. And her message to them was, He told me everything I ever did. And they must have seen something different because here they come to see for themselves. And they say at the end of that story, we believed because we heard you, but now we believe because we have seen it for ourselves. When he wants to prove to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful, he sends you. And hopefully when he sends you, you have proof that you have been raised from the dead. Turn back to 2 Corinthians This is what it says in verse 3. It is plain that you are Christ's letter produced by us, meaning Paul was there when, when God was working in them, when they were believing in Jesus. It was through his ministry. Not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Now, ink was, was not permanent. You know, ink fades away. And so he's comparing the ink something that's not permanent, something that eventually after time is going to kind of fade and fade and fade with the work of the Spirit, which is permanent and will not fade. You know, so often in my Christianity, in my life, I'll I'll come to church or I'll be reading the Scripture or doing some Bible study or hear some other teacher and they'll say something that's just so true and they'll say, this is what you should be doing and then I'll look at my life and I'm not doing that and I'll, I'll want to change. And I think I should change. I need to change. And so I'll try to change. I'll do my best. I'll lay everything on the table. And for a while, I will have changed. But eventually, after time, I kind of creep back to where I was. You know, that's what most of us do. We just end up kind of redecorating our spirituality based on whatever conviction we're feeling at the moment. You know, we'll go through a season of where, man, i got to get into the Word. It's the Word, the Word. i got to get into Scripture. If I get into Scripture, everything will be great for me. And that's true to a certain degree. And, and we'll be all into it. And after a while, that kind of fades. And then we'll say, it's worship, it's worship. If I'm really truly worshiping, I'll worship in spirit and in truth. Then everything will start lining up for me. And eventually that will kind of fade away. It's mission. i got to serve people. If I was serving people, then I'd be fulfilled. If I was getting out there and I was telling people about Jesus, if I was serving the poor, then everything would be great for me. And we'll be all into that for a while and we'll make those changes, but eventually it kind of fades away. It's prayer. Prayer is everything. i got to pray. Prayer is the hope of the world. Prayer, 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 prayer. We'll be praying for a couple of weeks. And then meanwhile, as we make all of these changes, 
It doesn't change how we talk to our wives. It doesn't change how we respond to our children. It doesn't change the kind of things that we do when no one is looking. None of that stuff changes. We've just redecorated our spirituality based on whatever we're feeling at the moment. That's just ink. That fades away. But a true verifying letter of the power of the gospel, somebody who's been raised from death to life, that's the work of the Spirit, and that doesn't fade away. You know, most of us are just fueled by our religious willpower. You know, religious willpower, it's just your desire to do what's right, but it's just based on your ability to get it together, to hold it together. I remember when I was in high school, I was started to kind of embrace my own faith. That's a process, I think, for every uh, child who grows up in church. It's the faith of your parents, and you believe it with genuine childlike faith, but there's got to come a point in your life where you say, you know, this is moving from just what my family believes to this is what I'm going to do with my life. And so I was kind of moving through that process when I was in high school, and big thing at my church was the kind of music that you listen to. You know, if you were a true follower of Jesus, then you listened to Jesus music and everything else was Satan's music. And, and so I looked at my CD collection and went, oh my gosh, I have like one Jesus music CD and I got a lot of Satan CDs apparently. And so I had a heart for God and that's what the people at my church were telling me to do. So I threw all those bad boys away. And a couple months later, I kind of regretted it because it turns out that those CDs, like I, I liked them and apparently. And, uh, and so then I would buy them back. I was a part of the, one of those music clubs, you know what I'm talking about, back in the day where you could buy like one CD and they sent you like 16 for free, which was amazing. I don't know how they made money, but they did. And so I'd signed up for all the same CDs. I think there was one CD that I owned in high school. I think I owned it four different times because I would, I would buy them and then I'd feel bad and I'd throw them away and then I would buy them again and I would try, you know, really hard. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm Jesus and this is Satan's music and oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I'd throw them away again and I'd try my best oh my gosh, I'm not going to listen to that music. I mean, it's my favorite song of all time, but I can't listen to it because Satan loves it. And anything Satan loves, I got to hate it. That's what somebody's telling me right now. And so I was making these changes that never lasted. But it was always just my ability to not listen to it, to not turn on the radio, to not check the box on the, send me this CD, not this CD. Just what I could do to order my life so that I could hold myself together in godliness. That's just ink. Those kinds of changes, they don't last. Now there is an important place for your struggle and your self-control. I want you to turn to Colossians really quickly. Colossians chapter 1. A few pages to the right. Colossians chapter 1. says this, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Look at verse 29. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. So there is a place in your faith for laboring and striving. There is a place in your faith for self-control. But look at the strength that you labor and strive with. It's not your strength. It's not my strength. It's his strength that works powerfully in me. We're not trying to make changes today that are in ink. 
This is what I'm doing, and I need to stop doing that, and I need to start doing that. We don't want to make changes in ink. We want to make changes that are connected to the power of the Spirit of God. That's the kind of letter that goes out to the world to say the kind of way that they're living their life is different from all the other people in the world who are trying to get their life together. Listen, there are a lot of people in the world who are trying to stop doing this and start doing this. You don't have to be a Christian to want to make changes. But we want to strive and labor with more than just our religious willpower. Religious willpower alone does not recommend Jesus to the world. Religious willpower alone recommends you to the world. And your strength and your power and your ability and your own flesh to try to strain together godliness doesn't save anybody. But when you strive and you labor through the power that comes through the Spirit of God, that's different than what anybody else has to offer. And then back to 2 Corinthians, we'll look at the last phrase. Not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. Now that's a reference to the Old Testament. You remember the story of the Old Testament? God delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. They were slaves there and he leads them into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But the the amazing thing about God delivering the Israelites out of slavery is not just that they were slaves and now they're not slaves, but he promised them, he said, I'm going to live among you. And he did. And so, you, so they built this tabernacle according to the prescription of God and, and it was a tent and they could look to the tent at any time and they could see the, the fire of God or the cloud of God. Can you imagine this being in that kind of reality where you could look with your physical eyes and you could see the very presence of God? That's what the Israelites knew out in the wilderness. And so, but God said to them, If I'm going to live among you, then there's got to be some rules. There's got to be some laws because I'm God and you are humanity. And humanity and God are not the same thing. I am holy and you are sinful. And so if we're going to be together, then there's got to be some law so that we can coexist together. And so he gives them the law. You remember Moses goes up on top of the mountain and God writes it on the stone tablets. The prescription of this is how you live with God. And he would give them these sacrifices to make to cover over their sins. Now thankfully, because of Jesus, our sins get erased. They're done away with forever. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus, they just got covered over until Jesus came. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that they were not very good at following the law. And so God would send prophet after prophet after prophet to remind them, hey, you got to follow the law. You're the people of God. And God lives among you. You've got to follow the law. But God promises, promises them something better to come. Turn quickly to Jeremiah chapter 31. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a prophecy of what was to come. It says in verse 33... Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will place my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. So the Apostle Paul, he's bringing this verse into his letter to the Corinthians. He's saying, listen, the law of God, 
Because of the gospel of Jesus, it's not on some stone tablets being forced upon you. The law of God, because of Jesus, because of the work of the Spirit, is written on your hearts. Now you've got to see the difference. It's one thing when some kind of law is being forced upon you. That this is what you have to do. This is what you ought to do. I mean, how do you take it when somebody says, you have to do this? What's your natural instinct? I will not do that. I will do the opposite of that. Or I will do my own version of that. But because of Jesus, the law of God, the way of God, it doesn't come from the outside forced upon us. It comes from the inside. It's written on our hearts. It means that if you are a follower of Jesus, even though you're going to struggle and wrestle with your fleshly desires, at the end of the day, you should want to follow the way of God, the law of God, not coming from outside on you, but coming from inside of you. Is that not a powerful testimony to the world of the power of the gospel that someone would say, listen, I could do anything with my life, but I willfully submit myself to the way of God because I believe it's the best way. And I'm following this not because I should, but because I want to. Because his way is written on my heart, not on some stone tablet somewhere in the world in some religious building, but it's written here on my heart. And that kind of life, a life with resurrection power flowing through them, a life that's not connected to just religious willpower, but the power of the Spirit of God, and a life that says, I want to follow the way of God, not just because I should, but because I want to. That is a good reference letter to the world that they should believe in the Jesus that you believe in. I love John um, chapter 9 because it tells a story of this man who was born blind. The disciples of Jesus, they see this man and they asked Jesus a religious question. They said, Jesus, whose fault was it that this man was born blind? Because in their culture, if you had a physical um, uh, a challenge, it was somebody's fault. It was somebody's sin somewhere in the background. It was either your sin or it was your parents' sin or your grandparents' sin. It was somebody's fault. And so they asked Jesus, you know, Jesus, whose fault was it that this guy was born blind? And, and Jesus says, it wasn't anybody's fault. God did this so that he could be glorified. And, Jesus bends down and he, he takes the dirt and he starts making some mud and he puts it on this man's eyes and he tells the man, I want you to go and wash yourself in this pool, this fountain, which was not too far from them in the city of Jerusalem. And so the man does, he washes his face off, washes that mud off and he can see. Now he was born blind and, and in most situations, especially in the first century in Jerusalem, if you were born blind, you're going to die blind. And that's the reality. So this guy has never seen anything ever. Ever. And he washes off the mud and he can see. And so he starts celebrating. I know you might kind of put your hands in the pockets and go, praise God. But this guy wanted to celebrate. Because he couldn't see one second and then could see the next second. And I think that would make me pretty happy and you pretty happy. And so he starts celebrating. And so people start saying, hey, wait, isn't this the guy who used to beg? And this is the guy that we would see begging. And some people are like, yeah, this is the guy. And other people are like, no, he just looks like him. And he goes, no, I'm the guy. 
I'm the guy. Well, it happened to be a Saturday, which was a Sabbath, and so the religious people get in. Anytime religious rules start being broken, religious people pop into the scene, and so these religious people get in, and they're like, this couldn't happen. This couldn't be a miracle. Something shady's going on because this is the Sabbath, and you can't do any work on the Sabbath, and so if you were really healed on the Sabbath, and something's weird about this situation. So they start asking questions about Jesus, and they even bring in the guy's parents. Because they're thinking he probably wasn't born blind. Maybe he just wouldn't put in his contacts that day. Something is weird about this situation. And the parents are like, no, I mean, he was born blind. But they were kind of afraid that they were going to get kicked out of the synagogue. And so they're like, just ask him. He's of age. Just ask him. We don't want anything to do with this. Just ask him. And so they come back around to him and they say, tell us about what happened. Because if anybody healed you, this man that you're talking about, if he healed you on the Sabbath, then he's a sinner. And this is what the man said. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I know that I was blind. And now I see. That's all I know. God wants to communicate to our city this week that there is power in the gospel of Jesus. Not just religion and the power of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Not just behavior modification in the gospel of Jesus. He wants to demonstrate to the world that when you believe in Jesus, you come from death to life. And he's not sending a shark and he's not sending the sun or the moon or the stars, and he's not sending some giant mountain. He's sending you. And you may be like, well, I don't know what to say. I can't give a defense of my faith. I'm new at this thing myself. All you need to be able to say is, I don't know all the answers to all of your religious questions. All I know is that I was dead, and now I am alive. All I know is that my marriage was broken and he restored it. All I know is that I was sick and I was wounded and I was weak and he restored my life. All I know is that my kids were massively out of control, but I put them into the hands of Jesus and there has been some massive change that has come to my life. All I, all I know is that I was hopeless, but now I'm filled with hope. All I know is that I was massively depressed and I was totally caught up in anxiety and now I am free from all that. I know, all I know is that I was stuck in the same sin and have been stuck in that same destructive pattern of behavior for all of my life but I got into the room with the son of God and I am different now I was blind and now I can see so I don't have all the answers to all of your philosophical questions all I know is that there is a difference in me and so you believe it if you want to but I'm telling you I was dead and now I'm alive again and I think that's all the reason that you need to see for you to think about what he could do in you But there is no plan B this week for the city of Houston and wherever it is you are going to see the power of the gospel. It's just you. So you get connected to the spirit of God and the power which so abundantly resides in you. And you start moving in his life and a little bit less of your religious willpower. And people are going to see that. And you're going to be like the woman at the well. And people are going to say, I used to think that it was true because I heard you. But now I've seen for myself. You are Christ's letter.
to the world about him. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we feel that weight this morning. And we want to rise up to it. We want to rise up to your calling on our life. And so do the work in us today. Help us make the change that's not ink, but is permanent and lasting. And just a spirit of prayer, I want you to ask yourself, have you been raised from the dead? I'm sure I don't have to convince you that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Has God made you alive in Christ through the power of the gospel? And if you are ready for your resurrection today, then you say this with me in faith to God. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the son of God sent to earth. I believe that you lived a righteous life I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried, and that you were raised from the dead. And I believe that one day you will return. I give my faith to you. I turn from my sin. I want to be a Christian. Scripture says, Romans chapter 10, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the Bible promises that if you said that prayer in faith, deep faith, you are alive in Christ. Resurrection has happened to you.